Hello and welcome to another or episode of Ordinary People. Um, we have Andrew back at the controls. Hi. To Andrew. Hi. Um, Neil is going to introduce our guest. Uh, very excited to have him. So, Neil. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Paul and Andrew. Good to see you boys again. And uh, yeah, it's my privilege to introduce our, our well, I'll just welcome and I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, but it's my great privilege to welcome Arthur Cassidy, Dr. Arthur Cassidy, to uh, our our show tonight. And uh, so I think I'm just going to hand over to you. Can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a wee bit about who you are, where you're from, and uh, and what it is that you do. Um, uh, good evening, Neil and Paul, and uh, and to Grace uh, Community Church. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity just to say a little bit of my work in the vineyard. And very simple guy, um, saved by grace, and it possibly shouldn't have been, but this is what Calvary is all about. But where did I come from? Well, as uh, we've been friends, I think, quite a long time now, on and off, uh, you know, I know our, our paths go different directions, but born in Portadown uh, in the Alexander Gardens, and um, uh, my mum and dad and my two sisters, Claire and Barbara, and we have, I grew up, my parents brought me to church. I, we were brought up uh, as Anglicans. I didn't the word meant nothing to me at all, but I love music. I love singing in the choir, and um, and so I went in at the age of five with Gordon Spears. We were there and uh, just to sing. And it's the only place you can actually get uh, trained music, and we loved music. I couldn't read a note, uh, and I couldn't hardly sing. But in the Church of Ireland, I took great pride in being members of the school. The Royal School of Church Music was the name of it. And this is a great thing uh, to teach young guys how to sing who came from ordinary working class places like myself, you know. And that was in order to get... By the way, Gloria Honeyford sang in that choir too, just in case you didn't oh, know. She sang in that choir too. Not at the time I was there, but she had been in it too, apparently. I didn't know her terribly well later on. But anyway, um, you're taught to sing. And I sang my heart out, and um, and my sisters they went to piano and all that. But I was amazed at singing, and I'll tell you about the best part of it later on. But I was singing all of this, these amazing hymns, uh, powerful hymns, powerful organ pipes, and the sound just sent me. I felt so happy singing. But my parents didn't send me to church. There were Christian people who, like myself, are greatest of sinners, and. We were there, and it was great to not only to be sent to church because we weren't, we were brought to church. Mm-hmm. And I owe so much to my parents at that time because they brought us there faithfully Sunday by Sunday, Sunday school, Bible class, but on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Every night I was in that church. Wow. I went to Clowner, this amazing school where the clowns went, and I went there and I failed nearly everything there as well. I just, I wanted to be a vet, but I, did, I had no idea. What, oh. uh, I loved animals, I wanted to be a vet, and then, but God was working on me, but I'll tell you that in a moment. Um, it's uh, there, I, I, I failed 11 plus, and then in Portadown, because you lived in Portadown, you had a second chance, so you could do the review which was just in case you fell asleep in the first exam to get into grammar school, you could do it again. But I couldn't even work out the examples in the 11 plus and the review. And I spent all my time, and I remember this woman walking up and invigilator saying, have you not started yet? I couldn't work out the examples, never mind the ones on the test. So, so there it was, um, going nowhere fast. And so we ended up uh, in the woodwork class in Kleiner School. And my joints didn't fit. I had to fill them with wood shavings to make them look respectable. And I knew I couldn't be a joiner either. And I was a lost cause. I felt I'm going nowhere here, you know. And uh, so, so, but God was working. He cares. God really cares. He cares, mm-hmm. I tell you. You can't get out of his hand. Yeah. He, he gives the biblical promises. I'll hold you up. And I raise you up. And I knew he did. And um, in, in, in all my sin and in all my feelings, he raised me up. And so after that um, abysmal experience, uh, the only thing I was good at in Klein was school plays and pantomimes and singing. And, and I did that because there's nothing else to do, you know. So, uh, so when I grew up in all of that, I had this first introduction to theatre, you see. And then Gloria Honeyford, she was actually singing quite a lot, uh, but she had been singing very secular. Gloria was singing all these various uh, R.I. songs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, she had been in some arts choir as well. So that's where we all got um, our training. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, after that, I uh, met my wife there and in Quicks Endeavour. 
my son, my father-in-law, he was there as well. And he told me off all the time for not spending enough time on my knees. So it was an amazing experience, I think, just to emulate him and to see what is this about. He was his Bible open, praying hours every morning on his knees for missionaries all around the world from different places. Mm-hmm. I was amazed at this. I didn't know any of them hardly. I knew about two. You know, he had about 32. And I thought this was amazing. And so God was, the power of the Holy Spirit was shaping my life there. And so moving on from that, um, I scraped into university um, to do political science and off I went. I don't know why, but I did that because I, I, I just, I, I didn't have great interest in politics, but I felt that it was maybe the only faculty I could get into to do something to say I'd been there and, and <laughs> read, done the T-shirt, you know. Yeah. But I went there and as a member of Christian Union and, uh, and so things began to, to take off. So there I, I, I spent in political science and read that for three, four years. And then I was still, it was still niggling at me because I knew that I, uh, there was all the ministries. And it, it was a, the rector of Drum Creek, Kellen Ford, he said, you know, God calls you, he will equip you. And he did. And he will close one door, but open a thousand windows. And it, it, it took me all that time to realize that really, that yes. He did, and and that there are other ministries in the church. You don't have to have a clerical color. Mm-hmm. I could, uh, and I thought of church army, by the way, but but I knew that uh, I wasn't a good enough Christian. I was a terrible Christian. I I wasn't witnessing enough. I, I wasn't telling people enough. Um, I was just felt a bit dying, you know, like oh, I should be out like these other men, like a faith mission in Newcastle speaking. But I knew it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling God day after day, you know, and I was back in my heart and I said, Lord, I'm not good enough. Why have you called me into this? And so after that, um, praise God, you know, he took me to university and then brought me into my work in health psychology, clinical work, and opened up the door again. And the blessings just began to pour out mm-hmm. because I just said, look, God, here I am, sent me. Very good. Yeah. So if that's what is that the world you've just been in since then then, Arthur? Well, um, since then, uh, Neil, um, God has been so good. Um, when I was an academic um, lecturing in universities and uh, here and abroad in Hong Kong as well, um, I knew that was for a reason. He was molding me like the potter's clay. There I was. I said, just take me, Lord. You're the expert. I'm not. Take me and use me. I had no idea then that he'd brought me where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um I love God, uh, uh, and I'm such <laughs> I'm such an abysmal Christian in many ways because I say, look, Lord, you know, here I am, sent me. I should be doing more for the Lord, and I always want to do more. And but I think that, that He's just to be faithful. You know, there's nothing great about what I do. Certainly not. It's the other people that surround me and that are doing the work. And I think you know that in that work, He He did call me and equip me uh, for the reason. And I think you know. Um, Working as I do, uh, it was took an awful lot of years. I mean, I was spent 10 years in university, actually, um, and, and another 10, 15 years teaching and lecturing in university and researching. And so then I began to reach out. And I think I my specialty at that time was identity, personal identities, and the clinical aspects of identity formation. And that came because I knew the missions were going out to Africa. I was very involved at that time to the African Inland Mission and the China Inland Mission. And I knew that here was God. He has created us all black and white, different colors. And why do we have no word of racism then? Absolutely never heard of it. And we were God's children, different colors, different people, different needs. And 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 there's days I spent in tears because I wanted to be there and I couldn't be there. And I knew, Lord, just take me. I didn't feel right in university. I mean, I felt that I was a square peg in a round hole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I came from, from an ordinary working class background, which I love and admire and value so much now. You know, but I, was, I, I, I didn't fit in. And uh, but I, I, I suffered it as a ghost for a while. And then I began, and I thought, you know, something. God, you're amazing. And and there was this amazing grace. I could feel that amazing grace all the time, because there I was able to sing. Right. And somebody said to me, what's your best talent? Well, I said, I can sing anyway. That's something. And I thought, but I'm not going to end up on the stage. Definitely not. That's not for me. There was something that God had sown in my heart. And it was a love for people who are in the margin. Yeah. A love for people who were broken. Yeah. And I went back to Matthew's gospel. And I went back to also Psalm 37, where God says, look, commit your way unto the Lord. Believe in him. And I will make this happen. And he did. Mm-hmm. And I hold on, no matter where I am. Uh, and my travels, I always go back to Psalm 37. 
Yeah, that's good. I love that. I love that language that you're talking using there, Arthur, about love for people on the margins. And so maybe, maybe would you would you tell us a wee bit about, for example, yellow ribbon? Could you tell us a wee bit about? Like, sure. So, yes. Um, uh, well, I, I felt that um, I had a very good job, and um, you know, as an academic and researcher, and um, and God brought me to my my PhD and all of that, which didn't come easy, I can tell you. Mm. Never does for anybody, but anyway, uh, I was lucky getting a qualifying exam. I didn't get sure I failed a thing here twice, you know, as a, a real laughing stock around the town. I was happy making gigs and things, but anyway, God has his finger on me. Yeah. And, uh, and I was playing around with radio, Chris, and all this. It was a great crack egg because, you know, at that time you sent away for a radio station, you see, because the guy beside us, uh, to answer your question here, Neil, the guy mm. beside us in Alexander Gardens worked in Harlan and Wolf's called okay. Harlan Bluffs, actually, but Harlan Wolf, and he was a, a top hat guy. They were four men. And he had a massive radio station uh, in the back garden in a shed. And we'd all go up there and we had to get these radio, he showed us how to build a radio set, you know, and with crystals and transistors. And this was amazing. It took about three weeks coming, no Amazon. So you got this in about three weeks time and the, the absolute excitement of opening this up and getting this together, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought we can get in touch with people around the world here. And one night he got a missionary on out in Uganda and my eyes lit up and my head lit up too. <laughs> he said, what? Missionaries? And poured it down and we could talk to them. It was amazing. So this, I went on and I kept thinking, do you know something? Um, God calls us to do s- s- different work in the vineyard. Calls you, you there, Neil, and Paul's there and I'm here and Ronnie's there and the other people are here. And I felt it's a very big vineyard, but he doesn't fail. God never fails. Mm-hmm. And he gives us that love and joy and hope and strength in serving him. Mm-hmm. And in all our, our sort of, in all our weaknesses, you know, he cares. And our brokenness, he cares. He reaches out. And I knew at that time that I wasn't unhappy. I've never been unhappy. I've, I've always been happy doing what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I, I do well and other times I don't. And But Yellow Ribbon came along because I had been doing research at that time into, um, into threatened identities, people who felt on the margin, they were colored, they were maybe African-Americans, uh, they could be Chinese. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I knew at that time there was something, these, who loves these people? I know that God loves them, but who's working out? So I was beginning to see missionary uh, missionary work and evangelism from a different light. I said, look, you know, if we died tonight, where are we going to be? If these people die, where are they going to be? And I knew that then um, that you can know so much about God and you can do those traditional things, but are actually reasonably meaningless sometimes, you know, because I kept the question, what value does it have believing in tradition? And it's important to many people, I realize that, but for me, I wanted the real thing. You know, I wanted that. I wanted to know him personally. And that's where Yellow Ribbon came in. Now, I got a connection out of the blue one day from this place in America. And it was the time of the suicides in Portadown where the forgotten school boys lost their lives. Yeah. And because I was working as a specialist in suicidal behavior, um, the world press were here in the town. Mm-hmm. I tried to keep away from it all because, it, you know, it was like it was really awful out here at Laurel Vale. Um, and uh, Tony Walker, Tony had lost his lovely little son there. And, um, you know, and the other people as well, Wayne Brown. And so and it was just tr- absolute pure tragedy. Yeah. And at the same time, there were 26 of these happened in South Wales and Bridgend. And I felt that uh, because... Journalists were coming across and pointing at things saying, did you not know, could you not do anything about this? I said, look, you don't understand suicide work. I, we all know nothing about this. Mm-hmm. There are still suicides going on that I don't hear about. We don't hear about them. I'll tell you why in a few moments. Um, people think that in, in Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention, we see people who are suicidal. We do occasionally. We get them, we diagnose them very early on uh, to prevent that from getting as far as that, if we know about them. Mm-hmm. And we can't know about everyone. I wish we could. And sadly, the people who do lose their lives, and some very recently, as you know, um, they would still be alive, but we don't know, sadly. And, but what happened was the police came to me and said, look, um, we need to do something here about, um, about suicide and Portadown. And so, but I have no business training. 
you know, I'm lucky having what I have, never mind business mind, you know, and said you need to set something up. Hmm. You know, I, the only thing I could set up was my own car on a Saturday night downtown. <laughs> so I said, right, okay, Lord, I'm going to go out. And down I went and the back of my wee car, I went down the town and <laughs> I opened up this. Uh, now, Yellow Ribbon were only in touch with me. We hadn't set it up yet, but uh, God was working in this. And I felt, right, there's a lot of young people out here at night, you know, and they're lost and broken. And and I was so, I, I, I just admired all the other work was going on from from the people around the town and uh, and Gordon Foster and all those other people around the town. And I was getting to know people who are out around the river and so on. And so I opened up the car and got a couple of big flasks and opened up the boot and put soup in it at night, you know, and da-da-da-da. And then I'd been, of course, with a cleft. Uh, I spent, uh, I'd been with a cleft for a long, long time and uh, and I was crossroads. And But at that time, um, the CW Hall, you see, had been the background because I used to go there as a child on a Sunday night after St. Mark's Church. You didn't, you got out of church at eight o'clock and you had 10 minutes to go around the corner to the CWU and they had a big kitchen. So they were going to make this soup for me and da, da, da. So I was able to get that down, fill the flask and bring them down and stand under the regal beside the pleasure gardens. And I was able to go there and open up. And so these guys would be coming around at night and saying, hey, Arthur, you know, what's this all about? And I would have wee tracks with me and and a couple of wee uh, Bibles that some uh, other people were able to give me to give out to them and give them out health literature and stuff like that as well. So they got health literature. We uh, got stuff in drug addiction that I was working at the time and narcotic abuse. And so I was able to give them that and give them a tract or something. Else. Sometimes I throw them away, but I'd lift them up again and dry them out and put them in the car. But then they would, um, they, but we got to know them and they got a bone going with them. And he had all these crazy questions like uh, the guys were doing all the drugs of the day that was going on down the river, you know, at that time. So, yeah. but the love was there. Mm-hmm. The love, not just from me, but from other people working around the town and different ministries. And, and, it's all working together, you know, and and I felt that, well, here I am. I've got a bit of a wreck of a car here, you know. Well, you do as an academic. <laughs> you don't be driving BMWs. Uh, so the thing just about went. So anyway, and so it, it served the purpose. And then uh, God was working. A couple of businessmen in the town, Ernie Thornton, uh, uh, they were living around the town, and they donated a caravan to me. And but I had nothing to pull up. My car wouldn't have pulled the rice up if couldn't. But I had to get this guy, and he came along. He said, I'm from the Elam Church, and he came along with his wife. And they had a four before a tiny one, and that would pull up. And they were excited for evangelism in the street. And they helped me out, Desi and his wife. And so we got this caravan, and it was a real beauty of a thing. You could have lived in it yourself. So anyway, here I was in the caravan. And uh, we got a job and we get ministry working with young people. And I was so happy. That was my calling, just yeah. being with them and older people coming along and drunks and all the rest of it and having a bit of crack through the night with them, you know. And um, and I'd set up about maybe eight or nine o'clock at night on a Saturday night and go through to four o'clock and five o'clock on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Go home, get a bit of hours sleep and they'd head out to church about 10 o'clock, you know. And not knowing what was going on, I was half asleep, you know, but anyway, but the thing, it was great fun and meeting people. But the thing was, the main important thing was they were lost. They were broken. Mm. They were in relationships they shouldn't have been in. Nobody to guide them. Mm-hmm. And never, God didn't figure on the radar, wasn't anywhere on it. And I thought, you know, it opened up a lot of doors for me. And I thought that, you know, uh, there's something lovely about this. And and so I come back to Yellow Ribbon and um, they said, look, you, we can give you a license to set up, but I know where to go. I was like, you know, where are we going to go? And But I knew that God was in this and he'd opened up a door for me. No money to set it up, nothing to do. And then uh, we got a wee room and it was over in Mandela Street. And uh, mm-hmm. at that time I was involved in the cultural program. And uh, so we had use of a few rooms there. And so I was using my caravan. But then people wanted to know, well, why are you working out of a caravan? And I didn't want to get a bad name. So so we then went to the council and we got it constituted for the borough council. Mm-hmm. And then the charity commission got regulated. And then we had to get this committee put together. And then it began to take shape uh, business-wise. So, so then uh, we had to... Um, I, I carried that on for a few years and then we moved across to Church Street uh, where we are now. And uh, the place has fallen down actually at the minute, you know. And, uh, and I was thinking, writing the scriptures there where 
the Lord went through, lifted the, the, the poor man through the roof, you know, and I thought, my goodness, Lord, you look at our roof, you know, they'll be lifting somebody out of here soon because there are many holes in it, you know. And I thought, but Lord, it's gracious. And I think, you know, the healing ministry uh, that we read in Matthew's Gospel and it was so dominant in my thoughts, you know, the fact that he made the blind see, the lame walk, he healed, he raised Jairus from the dead. And I thought, you know, that healing power and that, that ministry of healing is still very much centered in my life. Uh, and we're learning all the time. I have so much to learn yet, Neil, you know. Yeah. And I feel that that reaching out to the broken heart, I take GP referrals regularly, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I move into my other work, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Still doing the emergencies, but I've got a mental health nurse works with me now too. I have students from the University of Ulster and Korean Psychology Department. Uh, I take them every year now. I have four or five of them come, and they come to spend yeah. nine months with me yeah. in English supervision. And so we do that. So then uh, God moved me on into a different world as well as part of that yeah. ministry. Yeah. Talk about that, that the world of broadcasting. Yes, um, that came as a bit of a surprise. You know, God's full of surprises in your life, you know. Um, people, uh, I see some people, and you'd think they'd lost everything. Some of them have, actually. But I said, look, we're going to tell you, God will put a smile on your face again. You know, you have no idea what God can do in your life. If you think God's something abstract that's out there and doesn't care about you, you're far mistaken. Mm-hmm. This God is alive. He's fresh. Yeah. He's in tune. He created you like a watchmaker and he knows every detail of your thoughts, your minds, your emotions. And and he is a God of emotions. He's a God of happiness, a God of change, a God of positivity because he is creator. And at that time, uh, he I had no idea. Um, I had to, I knew that I wasn't writing academic stuff, you know, that was another part of my life. And I said, well, God did it for a reason. And it brings us into places sometimes that are tough with challenging, you know, and that was that. It was a challenge. Academic uh, academia was a big challenge for me. And, but I, God knows that I'm more excited about things reaching out in a dark world. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this dark world was going to be London Studios. I didn't know it was going to be reality TV when I ended up in Big Brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I knew and was praying one night, Regent Spurgeon. And I, and without going into all the details, I felt then a girl was saying to me, do you know something? Uh, if you look at that world of entertainment, you have so many people there. Uh, there are Christians in this, you know, not, not many, but there are. And People think because it's entertainment, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, I can tell you there's quite a lot of things that are not right about it. But then there's quite a lot of things not right about our lives, even as Christians either. Yeah. And, and I thought, I can't judge them. I can't judge anyone. But uh, God's opened up the door and has given me the opportunity to be trained for television and radio work. There's got to be a purpose in it. And I think I'm just called to serve mm-hmm. and called to be faithful. And that just opened up the doors uh, when... Psychologists were involved with Big Brother in 2006, and I was in Bournemouth Studios there, working with Jane Goody, who's sadly gone, and uh, and uh, and other celebrities, to Shilpa Shetty, the Bollywood film star, and people like that. And so we had a show there called uh, Big Brother's Big Brain. I don't know anything brainy about it, but um, but we were there, and Professor Jeffrey Beatty, University of Manchester, myself, and a few others. Dr. Pam Spur and people like that, people I didn't really know. But we all came together in Bournemouth, and this was the greatest big thing on TV. And I thought, do you know something? What's the purpose of all of this reality TV? Um, uh, It's it's anything but real. We know that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I watch, uh, as a psychologist, a celebrity psychologist, what they call us, not the term I use anyway, but I felt that celebrities were people who, just like you and I are human, they may have a lot of money, they have a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. They're people. They're broken. Yeah. Um, they are people unhappy in the wrong relationships, relationships that lead them to end their life. Yeah. And I knew who's reaching out to these people. You'd never say, I know I, I did see a clergyman day in the studios, but I don't know who he was. I didn't care who he was really, but but it's not the done thing. And I thought, you know something? We're reaching out across the world, rightly so, touching hearts and lives in every country. And even in drop-in ministries as well. You know, the wonderful work that's going on there too, Neil. And with this community, we are as communities that matter. And here was a community in London. Um, and uh, and whenever I sat down, the other one I met was whenever I moved in, I'm a celebrity, I did some work with them. And 
and Sky TV and others, um, I felt that, you know, uh, who are these people? I want to get to know them because if you've got the ministry, it's about bonding, coming alongside them. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, well, whenever God was so wonderful to open up the pathways and doors for me to contribute mm-hmm. in my small way and to my skills in, as a psychologist working on celebrities, it's coming alongside them and strip away the wealth, take away all that LS stuff and take that all away. Mm-hmm. It's meaningless at the end of the day, you know. It means nothing. Yeah. These people live and they die. Mm-hmm. And if they die without Christ, where are they? And I knew they were breaking. I listened to the stories. I listened to those. I work over there. There are people there of all faiths, no faiths, and mostly with no faiths, where it's imbued with, um, we have the gay community, which is very large, with the atheistic community, which is extremely large, with a very large Muslim population, a very large including Buddhism population, and it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't see anybody that was coming alongside them. Mm. And they interview all these experts. You know, I don't like the word expert, but the interview, we're called experts, but anyway, it doesn't mean anything. But anything, um, they interview these people. And I said, like, if all these people, are, our lives are in a mess, what are all these experts doing? Well, they just go on to a show and offer it again. But then I work freelance, of course. So uh, working, that's my job, uh, television and radio and broadcasting. But other people brought on as experts, they've got their own jobs and that's their life. But I was there and feeling, you know, God brought me up the into the world of technology uh, in studio broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing my training in London, it was really just being able to see, you know, what can I do to make a difference? It was only one person. And there was one guy who did meet me in the green room. Um, I can't mention his name for obvious reasons, but he met me in the green room and I was doing it this morning program a few times and we were talking uh, about where he came from. He came from East London. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I happened to perform something out of my messenger. I always carry this man bag and I think I carry all the junk of the day in it, you know. <laughs> but I had a wee testament in it that, and I had to stay overnight because uh, I wasn't due back to Northern Ireland the following day. I pulled this out and he saw it and uh, wondered what it was that because uh, it fell to his feet. It was we really getting test when I had. I ended up getting this to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't obviously mention his name, as I said, a large public figure. And we sat down for a chat and a cup of coffee and ended up, you know, I sent him another three. They wanted for people hunger, yeah. curiosity. Who is this God that yeah. you're talking about? Um, and with all that plethora of, of behavior that's going on that we're still trying to grapple with and amidst all the controversies, you know, the violence and everything else that we had, there's so much brokenness about. And we have it here, we have it everywhere. And we're just called to serve in our humility and in, in what gifts that God has given us, you, I, and others, and say, that is making a difference. Yeah. And so that's where I ended up and continue to thrive serving him, you know, as much as I can with all my failures and, you know, trying to do my little bit in that part mm-hmm. of the vineyard. That's really good. I love some of that. Again, love some of what you're sharing with us there, Arthur, because I think it applies to you in your role in a green room in London and it applies to us engaging with our community in a small village in, in Rich Hill, we're all called, I think we're all called to serve in humility. And you've used language there that I think is so important for, for no matter, again, no matter who we are to hear, who can we come alongside? Like you're talking about all of those different communities that just don't have anybody coming alongside. And it goes back to some of that t- stuff that you're talking about, a love for people on the margins. And sometimes that's what, that I think that's what the the main the main aspect of love looks like willing to draw alongside in your humility to to serve and to love people really well where where they're at and so it's great to hear that that's what you've been doing in your world and the challenge for us us all is how we do that really effectively in our own worlds as well um you just just for Time's flying here, unfortunately, Arthur, but I'd love you just to, to spend some time maybe just reflecting on um, just your just your your feelings on mental health and just the approach, how you've seen that change over the last couple of years. And, and even, yeah. uh, we've still a long way to go, I think. And is there some stuff that you can sort of speak around that for us? Yes. Well, we, we have um, 
uh, mental health champion now in Northern Ireland, Professor Siobhan McGarry, uh, sorry, Professor Siobhan O'Neill rather. And Siobhan is really, she's a mental health champion. And what we're doing now in Northern Ireland is the government has now got what's called a protective life strategy. Mm-hmm. And it's out for consultation at the moment. And the idea of this document is for the help us to work more closely together to uh, to target and the, the objectives in providing and reaching out uh, mental health services, reaching out to the urban and rural communities to diagnose early on and to identify people who are at risk and to bring them down. Now, those government documents are very important because we can't operate without them. It could be just moving, running around in the dark, literally, mm-hmm. except we have a strategy and we've got strategic aims and objectives to meet. And so that's it for consultation at the moment. And once that's ratified by government down the line, it will give us more concrete objectives of where we're going, what targets we have to achieve, how we're going to do that. And that will attract government funding. Now, um, that's at that level. Uh, What burns in my heart more is I believe that Christ is a healer. Mm -hmm. And I think we have the rights as fishermen, and I love that term, as fishers of men and women, we have that right to reach out in mental health through the churches, through evangelism. And we have to have proper training done in lay and pastoral ministry that's done professionally and properly and adequately to train and empower people in your church and mine and other ones, empower them to minister and to know and to understand really the difficulties people are facing. It's not it's not very obvious when people are thinking of ending their life, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we can put on a face very easily. We we often go around and we seem to be happy and we're breaking and crying inside. And I think, you know, there's one thing I know as a as a, a psychologist for many years standing now, really uh, whenever someone knows you're touching their life and their heart and their problems you're done exactly what God wants you to do. Mm. And I think the joy that we get is coming together. We should be coming together as church. We're too insular. And I think, you know, mm. we need to have a sea of change flowing through the churches now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can come out and say, you know, we're going to take mental health, you know, we're going to do it, do it seriously. We're going to do it properly. Yeah. And there's too much insular behavior going on, I think, between the churches yeah. in isolation, yeah. where they're doing their own thing, and that's not good. We have to be working with a common theme, working together, and having a strategy between the churches. I would love to see a strategy between all the churches, small and large, not institutional, independent churches, needing to come together and say, we're going to have a mental health strategy mm-hmm. that is going to reach meet the needs of the people in our community because if the community is looked after in that sense which you are doing a wonderful job of neil uh, and if you think take us a template for other communities and fire them up and empower them and train them to reach out for mental health uh, i'm just involved in a new uh, uh, it's a new uh, endeavor now called mindspace so mindspace 247 uh, it's uh, coming around about 10 days' time now, and it's providing a, a paid service, actually, for people who are waiting for two years to see a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever. And they are, Mindspace is being launched in London quite soon, um, and I'm heavily involved in that as an ambassador. And that is to provide for students as well, a highly, heavily discounted service, mm-hmm. so that students can get, uh, for a very small fee, I don't know what it is yet, they can get access to people like me and other people to have proper therapy rather than wait, because you're waiting around two years now to see a clinical psychologist or health psychologist, yeah. maybe less, you know, mm-hmm. and we need to take the stigma off mental health. Yeah. We've got to destigmatize the population yeah. and decategorize people, strip away the labels mm-hmm. where labels are destroying mental health. Yeah. And uh, where we're labeled, where when the margin, where we feel if we're not right, if we haven't got a label. Look, we need to take, remove all of those okay. and go back to the human factor and say, you know, I am your big brother. Mm-hmm. I am your big sister. I care about you. I don't care what color your skin is. It's irrelevant. And it's you, your heart, your mind that matters. And the truth of the matter is that we have the right people to train in our churches, do that job Mm -hmm. and to to touch those hearts. And this has to be a two point. We need to have the biblical exegesis. We need to have the preaching, the teaching, the support and structures in the churches 
to support those people. Because if you're going to do that, and all the churches to do this ministry, it's got to be done properly. It's got to be done in an effective way. Yeah. That's going to say yes, it's a community church, so it's eclectic in a way. It's bringing these people together. Yeah. Caring about the loss of jobs, the businesses are falling apart at the minute, the frustration and anger at not being able to open up again, all of that, you're getting it and I'm getting it, you know, and people are saying, where's God in the middle of this? Mm. What's God doing? And it's only at a time when there's a crisis to blame God, by the way, mm. you know, you never hear Satan's name mentioned. No, no, no. He does no wrong. It's all why did God let this happen? Mm. And that's where people are losing their faith, you know, and so I think it's better as there's a big issue here, a massive challenge, I think, for evangelicalism to step forward yeah. and to say, yes, we are living in the secular world, and but we have to understand the secular world and to listen to their voices and do something about it and yeah. win them. And I think they can be won over to a new way of life for faith and hope and charity become integrated yeah. and where these people are really and truly born again. Yeah. The one that's spirit. Yeah, and I, I don't want to just repeat all that you said, Arthur, but there's just so much that you've said in there that I think is so important for us. And and I think just reflecting as somebody that is part of a local church, sometimes the frustration can be. I think that's a clear, that's a clear marker whether you are here to serve people or not. If you're willing to put all of your other biases and prejudices aside in order to create some real strong strategy. Um, for the sake of for the sake of other people, and that language about being too insular is a real challenge. I'm really challenged by by what you're talking about. Um, it has to be done properly because I'm always nervous that it comes around to like a, a like a yearly you know like mental health there, mental health health week, and I'm always nervous that we do something and it just becomes a bit tokenistic, and then we just come back and then we pick it up again. I'm like, we how can we do this? How can we do this properly? And um, I guess what I just feel like my, my, my mind's going mad here at the minute as I think like that that, that language you're using about labels, how labels de-cat- are, are destroying people, decategorizing people. Um, and that's the significance of listening to people's voices is like art of the soul. So, so much in there. And I'm um, yeah. so really, really grateful for, for uh, really grateful for so much of that. Yeah, Arthur, I think one of the things that's really saddened me over the last the last year, maybe more, has been just the area of cyberbullying. Uh I I use use Twitter quite a lot and um it's just been painful to watch and hear so many stories of trolling and cyberbullying. And I know that's a work that you're passionate about. You do a lot of work around that. Um could you just talk take a bit of time and tell us about tell us about that and how we can better tackle this issue? Yes, well, uh, there are policies. I mean, uh, let me just qualify this, first of all, by saying, what do they do? Trolls, keyboard warriors, these are guys that can be of any gender, uh, of any race, any culture. Uh, they work usually in large groups of clusters. Uh, we usually guys like our scammers, professional scammers, back in the likes of Bulgarian places, we, we do not research, but in other countries as well. And they operate these people. And what happens is there's a form of control. It's empowerment. So these young guys feel empowered. They're paid money for trolling. Yeah. So they become a keyboard warrior with the intent to get high emotional payoffs. So a troll will get high emotional payoffs. They get a psychological kick mm. if you respond wow. in your vulnerability. So they will attack highly vulnerable young people, especially children who have got beautiful faces, um, childlike faces, children who have got a disability, and particularly have got a physical disability, will be a target. Uh, but also people got a weak personality and this is done at random and they will target you and keep targeting you until you're worn down really. Mm. And they get you to try and legitimize and believe in what they say about you is true. So um, you're not good looking. You should never be in television. You should not be doing what you're doing. Uh, don't believe in God. Don't be doing this. Don't be doing that. You know, you're useless. You know, you are. And this perpetuates right through their identity, who they are. So it's a satanic attack almost. Mm. I can't use that word in my profession, but it's a satanic attack on that person's individuality, mm. on their mindset, on their brain chemistry. Yeah. And there's no way out. And we have, I know um, in Channel 4 is producing a program, I think it's 
this week, next week, and Carlin Flack. And we've had a lot of celebrity suicides, as you know, over the years I've been involved in two or three of them just as a broadcaster. But also, I think it helps us to understand, you know, more so, we need to understand this bullying behavior. Bullying is going on now. Finding the evidence of this has now been a big problem, but it's becoming more sophisticated. Mm. And metropolitan police have got quite a lot of highly sophisticated devices now to monitor this. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is that the um, when that person is bullied, um, it they can track down your machine by your, your, your machine number, machine coding is called. But the, uh, the guys who do this, Bullying, cyberbullying, or keyboard bullying, you know, they're usually not aware that uh, they're breaching the Miscommunications Act, the Defamation Act, et cetera, et cetera. So they're totally devoid of knowing the legalities of it. Mm-hmm. They just want you to die mm. and to spill blood. That's exactly what they want to do. That's this psychology behind a troll very quickly. And I, I get from the gay community who are really badly trolled, especially if you're working in television. Mm-hmm. There are people with mental health issues. When you're brought into a hospital like Greg Abner, or St. Guy's, St. Thomas's, you're not asked what you believe in. Uh, you're just a person who's there and blood's pouring out of you, whether you've been bullied, beaten up, or whatever. And I'm thinking of the Good Samaritan coming along and lifting up that brokenness. Yeah. And I refer a lot to brokenness because our lives are broken constantly. And I think we have to, in our, in our, with all the skills that you have there, Neil, you know, and your team and Grace Community Church, you know, that, that reaching out, you know, the love and the touching of that person, lifting them up, that amazing reward of knowing I've brought them to life through mm. Calvary. And, and there's something important about that, you know, that's something that, that, that I see and think about and feel about quite a lot. You know, it's just we're not called to do anything absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. We're just called to come alongside that person, you know, and say, mm-hmm. I'm beside you. I walk a walk with you. Whether it's bereavement, yeah. whether it's a tragic road accident, whether it's someone lost their life for whatever reason, I am with you. Yeah. And help them to understand that God is a God of love and faithfulness and will never let you down, but he will lift you up. And he will recover you from cyberbullying. And it's coming on in very, very aversive ways at the moment, I can tell you, you know, and uh, and we get amongst the celebrities, but we get amongst the ordinary people in our town. Yeah. And and it's because of the concept of evil. And is we're, we're driven by evil, by evil motives, by yeah. evil attitudes. Yeah. And it's, it's really about causing harm. There's a motive to cause harm. And these are what we call psychopathological motives in the personality of the troll and the keyboard warrior. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah, that's really good, Dorothy. Thank you. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the many videos I've watched of, uh, of you was you were very complimentary about our village, Rich Hill. Um, you were there doing an interview with Joshua Hewitt. Yeah, um, yes, I don't think it was all that long ago, and uh, and so it was. It was great. I was really, I was just really chuffed that you how com- complimentary you were about this beautiful, picturesque little village of ours. So that was great. Oh, and then, and then just hearing, and then just hearing, uh, Josh, Josh's story. I, I'd already heard and knew a wee bit about Josh's story, but um, just really interesting hearing, uh, just hearing from somebody that we know from our local community, the impact that mm-hmm. cyberbullying had on him to the point of. Um, of almost taking his life, which is frightening. Absolutely, and the amazing to see how Josh has turned his life around even since then. Yeah. You know, I remember that day when we walked down to the stream, and when Josh and I and the cow behind us, and I remember that day when we talked about it, Neil. You know, it was amazing actually because whenever I got out and um, the car and we're going over to set this up, and Josh was doing all the technology bit, and right behind it, I think there was a cross, from what I remember, on the lamppost. I didn't say it until we finished. Yeah, I didn't say it until we finished. But the the bell bell that was tolling uh, was quite unusual. And I thought that was lovely. It was a tranquility. was a perfect setting for that to take place, you know. And here you had just that tranquility was a perfect setting. But it was the fact, you know, that when does a bell toll? Mm. And I'm reminded of other times when that bell tolls and I've got to say, you know, sadly, I wish I'd known that person who has just died by suicide. Mm. Um, And I've been to those and you may as well, Neil, you know, but I'm thinking, you know, in what is life? 
the value of life. And I think now it's time to cheer up the nation. And I remember Dick Saunders' campaign here when I was absolutely enthralled with this, you know, helping them to pitch that big tent right there on my road and battering the pegs down. And the joy of those evangelical, uh, you know, the missions were going on everywhere. The tents were coming up. But that was amazing. I remember that and the hymn singing and no masks and everything. And there we were. And the, the, the tears when it closed down after two or three weeks or whatever. Mm. And we had to pack the whole thing up together with Back to England. And oh, and I think, Lord, bring back those days, you know. But, you know, the thing is, I think, going back to the healing ministry and of the healing of the mind, the healing of the person, the people have lost their jobs in the times now. There are high number of young people unemployed now. Mm. Who's reaching out? Who cares? Yeah. And yeah. I think there's no greater challenges now for, for the community to look after these young people who are being bullied. Bullied for what they believe in. Bullied for what they look like. Yeah. And, and 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 businessmen whose lives are falling apart through no fault of their own. Yeah. Can we rebuild those businesses again? Yeah. Who's, is there hope? Yes, there is hope. I can tell you there's hope, and we know that. Yeah. And that hope will come. We have to hold on in faith, you know. Yeah. And faith doesn't come easy to people, but faith is a, what we call a cognitive, uh, cognitive belief structure. We have to have faith in something. Mm-hmm. and But it challenges us to search our faith and what do I believe in? And where am I going? Yeah. yeah. Arthur, can I ask a quick thing? Just because you were talking about uh, about churches and organizations, I guess, being having a bit more training and stuff around uh, spotting mental health issues mm. and things like that. Do you have a few kind of practical tips around that? Or uh, I suppose you kind of mentioned a wee bit about maybe we bury our heads in the sand a bit when it comes to mental health. Any kind of tips, practical tips, where we can sort of spot those blind spots that we have? or Well, you know, as um, if you're referred to suicides and mental health, very often they're hidden, they're very covert. We can't see it. And, um, and sadly, we lose a lot of people by suicide because there are no signs. Mm. And uh, But if you're in my clinic to hear people talking about chronic depression, I think the main thing, the first hacker or tip I would give, number one, listen. Listen carefully and keep focused on them. Mm. Let them tell their story. Point two, care for them. Have a support system in your church that gives them that hope and life to know and and empowers them, you know, with a new way to think. Get them to challenge the negative thoughts. Write out the negative thoughts. You know, for example, you might say, I'm never going to get a job again. That could tip someone right over the edge. Mm. On the right-hand column, challenge it. Where's the evidence that you're never going to get a job again? There's as much evidence you are going to get a job again than you're not going to get a job again. Next one, nobody loves me. Really? Right-hand column, challenge it. Right, let's start with your brother, your sister, your mother, your dad, your cousin, your aunt, your employer. Now, can you show me the hard evidence that nobody in this world loves you? Because I have news for you. You're lying. Because God loves you. We'll start with that one. How many more can you fill in? Next one, you know. I'm not going to get this exam, young people coming in. I know I'm not. I haven't worked hard enough. Show us the evidence that you're not going to get that exam. No. They haven't got it. We can help them to build up the evidence. We can have classrooms. We can have coaching going on. We can have, you know, there's various teachers in all churches that I've ever come into contact with who are prepared to do some coaching in the, in the classroom, homework clubs, all that sort of thing. That can save a child from taking their life. And children do, I can tell you. You know, uh, the other thing is, if you're aware of a mental health difficulty in any family, talk about it very sensitively, but remember ethics and confidentiality are vital. And you should have maybe some form of policies within the church mm. that are adequate to meet those. Because... The Children's Commissioner, any child under 17 goes to CAMS, by the way, if it's a mental health issue. But we don't know, many of these children don't have mental health issues and the parents are not even aware of it. You know, children who are bullied, you know, look out for the signs. Loss of weight and children's behaviour changing. Talk to the parents. You might be able to save life just by listening to the parents and saying, well, what's wrong with the little one? Oh, well, there's something strange going on at home. She's just not the same. It could be an indicator of a childhood depression childhood health anxiety. So it's a matter of coming alongside, listening carefully 
training people to listen, to have active listening. We can do that for your yellow ribbon sometime. Yeah. And so it's active listening skills and also befriending skills, you know. And we're called to uh, not just to forego anything as secular. We have to be sensible about it and intelligent about it to incorporate, um, you know, uh, life coaching skills within the church that are going to impact the people who are members of the community church or any church. And by doing that, we can find out the triggers and point them and signpost them to the to the right people in mental health services or to ourselves. Uh, another wee thing, sorry, uh, Arthur, and I think with the schools and stuff and the pressure at the moment, I know when the kids are going to go back to school, there's yeah. probably going to be they're going to be levelled with exams, and even even that pressure of you know society gives you that pressure of you need to perform well and so on your exams if you're going to make it in life. But yeah. in this screen here, I know there's Andrew's probably more qualified than us, but um, <laughs> but we're all in jobs which we have not really any qualifications for, you know. So the proof is, as we can look back and go, well, actually, the pressure to achieve then isn't really as important now when we look back on it. But... Have you found that with working with young people that there's like a there's like a almost like a, a this massive pressure on them to perform, which in the long run isn't really that important, but for them at that moment they're probably feeling a real pressure. Yes, I mean the the, the fact is you're absolutely right. There is a, a concurrent pressure on young people to perform to achieve because we're living in a highly competitive world of of young teenagers and adolescents, and the brain's undergoing quite a lot of change. The brain chemistry between the age of twelve and fifteen, especially uh, in early adolescence, but more so between fifteen and nineteen and late adolescence, uh, it changes quite considerably. And that time, the more sensitive to parents or parents saying putting pressure and you'd get great A's, go to Cambridge, go to Oxford, go wherever. And young people might say, look, that's not for me. And, and so I think it's helping parents to understand their children, but also helping children understand, look, your best is good enough, you know, and look, just do your best. Look at me, sure. Look at me, a complete disaster. But it didn't stop me. It didn't stop you. And I think be encouraging and saying, look, you know something, you will get there eventually. You know, do what makes you feel really happy. The parents, yes, they, they mean well with love and care for you and they want to do best. But people that are late developers, I mean, you know, look at me. I, I was a late developer, I suppose, in a way. But, um, but we all develop at individual speeds in life. And so I was being encouraged and said, look, it, it's nothing wrong with if you don't get your A-levels, you know, and you can go down NVQ, you can down GNVQ route. There's other vocational qualifications here. And, and, and you can transfer that will still get you onto university degree course, you know. So you can go down GNVQ, the NVQ rate, some people more practically minded rather than academic. And if you're academic, let that, let that be. If they're vocational, let that be. All rates can take you into university nowadays, you know. And I think we have to look and examine their talents and gifts, you know. A, a young guy that I was working with not long ago, a sound engineer, he's telling me his story. He failed everything like myself, you know. And he ended up working uh, eventually script into the BBC. He left, uh, he lived in Lisburn. Um, he ended up going to BBC Academy and got training over there and as technician and, and apprenticeship scheme. And he loves his work now. Mm -hmm. And he said university wasn't for him. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, he's doing so well now because he's doing, he just loves working with sound. It's just Quincy, we were talking about it. He's, uh, he's the boom man, a senior boom engineer now. And he's doing outside broadcasting work. They love it. So it's, it's important just to be happy what you're doing mm. fashion designer whatever you want to be just do it yeah. uh, even if it's out working on the streets like me you know <laughs> um, it's wonderful Arthur uh, I, I know you've already given us that I, I find those really helpful again to hear those those tips in response to Paul's question just around listening carefully active listening skills befriending skills challenging negative thoughts I think that's all incredibly helpful um, but I suppose just as we think of uh, it was with, with church, with work, as we come out, as we begin to come out of this lockdown, hopefully, and there's there's preparation for, I think, in some ways, a, an ongoing mental health crisis. I don't know if that's maybe too strong a word to put it around that. But do you have anything that you can maybe speak to us, even for just us as a church, as people just 
people wanting to know how do we respond really well, really helpful, really in a real healthy way to what's coming next. I think it's been able to be honest about our emotions in the church, leaders and, and congregations, be honest. Honest emotional exchange is good for mental health. And you have that honest exchange. It's all right to cry. It's okay to say, I've lost my business. It's okay, you know, to say, look, the world is down now. It's not our fault. This germ has caused this. Okay. Um, But we can recover this. We're not alone. You know, God is our refuge and strength, a very pleasant help and trouble. He will bring us there. So we, but He also gives us intelligence to use, by the way. And I think, you know, what we have to do is to take an intelligent post by maybe considering, perfectly considering a mental health campaign, uh, make maybe 2021, maybe Easter, the resurrection, a new start in life. Mm. You know, the resurrection story is about life. It's not about death, it's about life. And so those who feel dead in, in, in the business world, we can bring them alive again. Those who feel dead to themselves, we can give them renewed help and strength. You know, to build up that emotional resilience, which is very, very important, yeah. that they build up that toughness, that they be able to face challenges. And that's yeah. what emotional resilience is all about. And so I would focus maybe on a campaign, maybe I can come back to me on that one. Yeah. Think about a mental health campaign, how it maybe, maybe it would be structured. Uh, you could run that for maybe for a month, you know, mm-hmm. and bring in whoever you wish, you know, a range of speakers, maybe have seminars, Bible teaching seminars, get mm-hmm. that going. And where you're showing, basically demonstrating the biblical truths of, of that's in the scriptures and how that can actually connect to people's lifestyles. Because we become encapsulated with the fact, you know, oh, I've got to wait to say psychiatrist for three months. You know, you get the pills, but the problem's still there. Pills yeah. do work, but yeah. they, they will only camouflage the symptoms. They will leave the symptoms. They will actually help the symptoms. They really do. I have GPs uh, referrals all the time. Yeah. But you need to have the medication by your GP and your consultant psychiatrist. You have to have that. Mm-hmm. But you also have to have cognitive behavior therapy, a dialectic behavior therapy, mm-hmm. and you need to have both working together by people who are qualified to do it so that you're taught the skills of emotional resilience, how to build it up, mm-hmm. you know, and how to empower yourself so that you're working, thriving within the church, thriving with the challenges in mental health, and be able to show people to teach them how these teaching seminars to teach them new skills, coping skills, you know, how to yeah. cope at school, how to cope when I'm getting depressed about homework and essays and so on. Depressed about my body image, a very, very big one in teenagers at the moment. Yeah. Celebrity worship, another big one that's causing mental health issues. Yeah. So, but we can talk about that later on sometime, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, times flew on, Arthur, and we're no problem. We'll have to wrap things up here. Sure. I've, uh, I can show you, my, I have a page here, and I've just, I don't, I've scribbled all over it. It's uh, so much helpful stuff that you've brought to us tonight. Really grateful for your time. Uh, really grateful mm-hmm. for your heart for this. Um, I really, and I think just you, you are full of hope. It's just been good to sort of. The hope's quite contagious, isn't it? And so, oh, absolutely, <laughs> you seem to be a you're a hope-filled person, and so hope's contagious. And so it's been great to been great to have you on. One last question. One last question, Arthur. Before uh, before we close, um, I didn't prep you for this, but it's a simple one. What I always want to ask at the end: what uh, what you're listening to or what you're watching that you would want to recommend to our uh, listeners. Oh, what am I listening to? I really get time now. Gee, uh, oh, where would I start? Well, I'm involved in the Noah's Ark project uh, at the moment in in Johannesburg, okay. and it's a re- recreation of Noah's Ark. Uh, for the next uh, few decades. And I'm involved in that project in a minute, and I'm mindful of God's creation in that. Uh, it's on Globe Trotter and Sky, yeah, and every Monday at 12 o'clock. I think it's Globe, Globe Trotter Sky 191, yeah. I think I've got it correct. And that will show that all we're going to save all the animals and the endangered species, put them into massive scientific domes or eight domes being built around that. And uh, the book's just coming out now called You Are Noah. So I've written a chapter in that book. Um, and so that's coming out, I think, at the end of this month. Yeah, right. just after you say, you are Noah. Right. And uh, so that tells us all about that project, yes. Right. Um, I must admit, and you can laugh your head off at this, but how do I unwind uh, and watch something in telly, which I do? Um, I, you know, 
fools and horses all the time. You know, <laughs> and horses is my tonic. I can't get away from it. You know, I grew up with it. I can't. I always carry it with me. I'll keep it. I would never throw them out. Uh, <laughs> I just love Dale Boy. You know, and uh, <laughs> you know, but a lot of people that I'd work with maybe are from that part of the world. You know, uh, and so uh, there's a connection there. And uh, Ronnie Barker opened all ours. All these these oldies things that yeah. I, I. But anyway, uh, it's not all like that. You know. Um, I, I've lived a bit of an animal kingdom. I love documentaries, and um, uh, and so I just love to see the documentaries. Music, yeah. my good, I wouldn't be able to start. I take an all hour to tell you if that starts. <laughs> um, but yes, and um, I, I did. I just worked just before I close. And Smiling Sessions, by the way, I've just been working with them, an ambassador for the Smiling Sessions Music Group in London. And he said on YouTube, I had to do idol advice at their request. We're making all the celebrities, uh, Basil Burst, myself, Brian McFadden, all of those. If you Google it, you'll see that. Uh, it's about uh, we're, we're doing a karaoke thing for all the residential care homes in London Brilliant. and all other cities. And uh, and I was taken by by uh, surprise when I was asked to do that one. But we're doing that. Daniel Donaldson as well. He's doing his bit. But we all did that by Zoom uh, just before Christmas. And uh, we're making, and the idea is the people who are donating to that project, we're buying them all laptops so they can see their families. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that happened way back uh, November, December time. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're making a new series about it at the moment. Right. Uh, more celebrities. And uh, and so that's that's something new that I've been doing at the moment. So Excellent. I'm going to be doing a little bit more singing. So, um, right. you know. Uh, I'm also looking at the moment downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, you know, and uh, and so I'm going back and Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. So, so, but I could say more, and I've been talking all night, Jeff, as tell you all the other things. That's brilliant. I look forward to that. Smiling sessions. The smiling sessions. These smiling sessions. Very good. Yeah. Brilliant, Arthur. Yeah. Arthur. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Uh, really, really great to have you on. And I appreciate your time and appreciate all that you're doing. So not at all. Um, from us, thank you so much. Be in touch soon again. Thank you, yeah. Neil. Thank you, Paul. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank See you. you. Ordinary People was hosted by Neil Dawson. It was produced, edited, and engineered by Andrew Griffin and Paul Woods. Head over to ordinarypodcast.com for show notes, links previous episodes and all the ways you can contact the show. See you next time.